Hello and thank you for tuning in. In this very special recording, we're sharing the AAIC highlight session that was recorded live, online and in Denver during the AAIC on Friday the 30th of July. Session chairs Percy Griffin and Rebecca Edelmeyer spoke to speakers Alexander Ernberg, Wagner Brum, Karen Dorsman, Maureen Okafor and Anna Volkmer to discuss their highlights from the week. Please bear with us as the sound quality is not always as great as we would like, but this was a live session and we're very grateful to the Alzheimer's Association and iStar for sharing the recording with us so that we can share it with you. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, my name is Percy Griffin. And I'm Rebecca Edelmeyer. Welcome. And on behalf of the Alzheimer's Association, it's our pleasure to welcome you to the AIC Highlight Session. We have seen a wealth of stellar research on display at AIC, And in this session, we will hear from a panel of five early career researchers regarding what their AIC highlights have been. If you didn't get to see um, any of the research that they mentioned, there's no need to, there's no need to miss out. Um, with all the scientific sessions available on demand for 30 days. We do have a lot to cover here today, so we'll first start by introducing you to our panel of researchers. Joining us in person here in Denver is Alex Ehrenberger. Alex started at the University of Southern California Memory and Aging Center as a staff researcher in the lab of Professor Leo Grimberg in 2013. He now has dual roles as a researcher in the Greenberg Lab and as a PhD candidate at uh, Berkeley's Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute. Alex's primary interests are in the evolution and life uh, history factors that influence early, early patterns of selective vulnerability in neurodegenerative diseases. And he's an executive committee member of the iStart Neuromodulatory Subcortical Systems Professional Interest Area of Field. And we're also virtually joined by four other speakers. We have Rob wagner Broom on the line. He is a joint MD-PhD student between the Federal University of Rio Grande do Sul in Porto Alegre, southern Brazil, and the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. His main research interest is understanding how fluid biomarkers can track Alzheimer's disease, clinical biological progression, and how they can be implemented in clinical practice and trials. Wagner is passionate about connecting with the international research community, which has led him to join the ISTAR-PIA to elevate early career researchers as the South America Executive Committee representative. We also have Karen Dorsman on the line. She is a doctoral student in clinical psychology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. And Karen is a dedicated volunteer community educator through the Alzheimer's Association of Dallas and Northeast Texas chapter. On the line, we also have Maureen Okafor, a postdoctoral fellow at the Guizeta Alzheimer's Disease Research Center in the Department of Neurology at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Of current interest to her are the design and conduct of clinical research centered on cognitive aging, including vascular, metabolic, and biomarker contributors to neurodegenerative diseases. She is a member of the Alzheimer's Association iStart Clinical Trials Advancement and Methods PIA Executive Committee. And last but certainly not least, we do have on the line Anna Volkmer. She is a senior research fellow and lecturer at University College London. She leads research developing novel interventions for people with dementia, particularly rare dementias such as primary progressive aphasia. 
She is a senior speech and language therapist working at the National Hospital of Neurology and Neurosurgery, University College London Hospitals. We welcome you all. Thank you so much for joining us today. Each panelist has a different research focus, and together with them, we will be covering all of the different AICPs. It's been quite different from previous years, so we're just going to open it up to the panel to hear what your experience has been. I can go ahead and start. First, thank you for the invitation. This is truly an honor. Uh, well, I'm biased, but I, I've been enjoying the hybrid mode, particularly because I'm able to go back to those sessions that for some reason I was not able to attach. One of the big things is that when you're in person, you really need to decide and prioritize which session you're going to, but you know, that's not the case when it's a hybrid and you can catch it later. But what are the others think? I completely agree with you. Um, I think, um, and to just thank the AEIC and Alzheimer's Association for having me um, on here for this uh, conversation. I agree with you completely, Karen. I think that just having a, you know, this be one of the largest get-togethers um, and conferences, uh, you know, especially in dementia science, um, being one of the first organizations to plan and execute um, a virtual uh, space where people in person and, you know, uh, remote can meet together and collaborate, you know, um, is, is wonderful. I've had a tremendous experience so far, so it's been great. One of the things that's been really nice, actually, in the scientific sessions, usually there's kind of stinted Q&A sessions because we're just, you know, pressed for time. And one of the things that's changed this year is the Q&A sessions have all been at the end uh, and um, incorporating questions from both the virtual audience and in-person audience. And I, I actually think that it's kind of given rise to better discussions. Um, yeah, I really, I'm really enjoying this hybrid format. Like, I mean, the advantages to an in-person conference, like, are, of course, you can watch the, the content on demand later and you don't have to worry if you missed any session. Uh, but I think we really got to feel a little bit a part of the conference with the whole uh, hybrid sessions when we could like have our questions being mixed with those of people who are actually there. So uh, I think it was a really great format. How about you, Anna? I also wanted to add that it's been wonderful being able to attend despite having clinical commitments during the COVID pandemic. Actually being able to fulfill my academic kind of uh, commitments and continue those things that I love whilst actually serving the patients that I see is a really wonderful opportunity. Um, and I'm really grateful that the AAIC have done this online, this hybrid method again. It, it means that it's feasible for us. Thank you. Uh, I think our first discussion we want to do around uh, biomarkers from sort of clinical trials to clinical settings. And I think really where we want to start with is uh, talking with Wagner and Marie. Um, and we know that biomarkers have been discussed at AAIC. They span from brain scans to blood tests and have once again really been a hot topic. Uh, this week began with Heinrich Zetterberg's plenary on Monday, on Monday and is concluding today with sessions focusing on how biomarkers can move from research settings into clinical practice. So the development and optimism of biomarkers is really crucial, we think, for multiple sessions. And first, in order to improve diagnosis, making it more timely and accurate, this is really a focus we know, uh, Wagner, of your work. Um, and second, in order to improve clinical trials with the incorporation of biomarkers into those trials, allowing for the assessment of the impact of the treatment on disease progression. 
And this is particularly a focus of Maureen's work. So, Wagner and Maureen, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about your work and interests in this area? My research interest, I think I've been thinking about this in a broader sense, is to understand how we can uh, use biomarkers to support better decisions. I mean, we have to make decisions all the time. In a clinical setting, we need to decide whether to treat a patient or not. Uh, or even in a research setting, we want to study a disease and we might end up using biomarkers to define the group that constitutes the disease we want to study. So I'm really curious to try to understand if we are making the best decisions to use these biomarkers. Uh, in this big biomarker uh, theme, I think that considering what's happening now in the field, uh, I'm also very interested to understand how can we use blood biomarkers. I mean, uh, what blood biomarkers reflect, like how they relate to neuropathology, CSF and PET biomarkers, and how they can ultimately be used in clinical practice for differential diagnosis against other non-AD dementias, and in also assessing the risk of future cognitive decline. That's great. Maureen, go ahead. Oh yeah, and um, my overall interest is in clinical trial design and conduct. Um, I have, you know, specific interests in vascular and biomarker contributors to neurodegenerative diseases. So especially as it relates to Alzheimer's disease and, and cognitive decline, cognitive aging. Um, my more recent uh, projects that I've done with my mentor, Dr. E. Havajar at Emory, focuses on repurposing drugs that look at, or at least that target different AD pathways. Um, so for instance, neuroinflammation and the uh, amyloid pathway, and just trying to see how we can use the knowledge and, you know, the, the, the drugs that we already have to funnel through to um, therapeutics for Alzheimer's disease. Um, overall, I think um, I, I like to see how clinical trials can translate into a clinical practice and, and, and how we can use all the information and all the knowledge that we, you know, we're gaining um, doing, you know, conducting all of these trials into providing better care to um, patients. Thanks, Maureen. Um, Wagner, maybe just to follow up with you, I know that in preparation for us doing this session today, you shared with us that a key question that you were on the lookout for uh, to hopefully answer at AIC was how close are we to new blood biomarkers in terms of them reaching uh, clinical practice? And why is this such an important issue? We know that Alzheimer's disease is the most uh, prevalent cause of dementia, but we also know, mainly from neuropath studies, that Alzheimer's disease rarely occurs alone, and several other brain diseases might be into play. So, I mean, considering these varied uh, underlying neuropathologies, we, we really need biomarkers to understand what's biologically contributing to, to the clinical syndrome of, of each patient, of the way each patient presents. So if we have a patient with memory issues, can biomarkers tell us whether it, it, it might be something that Alzheimer's disease might be contributing to? And of course, uh, as we enter the new uh, era of disease-modifying therapies, it will become even more important to make sure that uh, we are screening and uh, pre-screening the right candidates for uh, a disease-modifying treatment. And even aside the new era of disease-modifying treatment, Having, for instance, a good uh, differential diagnosis biomarker can be such an important tool to help physicians to make better and safer decisions. And for instance, like avoiding uh, medication, medications that might not be advised for a specific patient, and therefore like avoid an uh, iatrogenic cascade 
which we know is so life-threatening for the elderly. So I think that considering how uh, relatively cheap and scalable our blood tests, they are really interesting to, to, to help us answer these questions. So did you feel that coming to AAIC this year that you have a better answer in how close we are uh, to having these types of tools in the, in the physician's office? I think so, yes. Uh, and I mean, we had the new PTAL wave of biomarkers in the blood last year. And I think so much has happened since then uh, because we had uh, different assays, different platforms, new epitopes. Uh, we have now a more deeper, deep understanding of what's going on with these mar markers. Uh, but I leave the conference uh, more concentrated on the questions and the challenges that we still have. So I separated a few things that I think was important to highlight here. I think that, for instance, it's starting with Monday. Something that I think a lot sometimes about is what we consider a blood, uh, not only a blood, uh, an AD biomarker. And I think there was a very nice session shared by Bill Jagas and, and Michael Scholl on the ever-changing landscape of biomarkers. We had like a very nice overview from neuropath to imaging to CSF and blood. And I think discussing what we understand as an AD biomarker is really crucial so we do not also limit it only to amyloid and tau biomarkers. Uh, and still on Monday, we had the plenary with Henrik, in which, well, I think he gave us a fantastic overview of where we stand in the field with fluid biomarkers, of what has happened in CSF, in blood, what are the challenges. In, in, I think that maybe the thing that, the, the findings that I found most important and most novel, uh, of course, re regarding what we have seen in the past year, on Tuesday in a plasma session, we had some fantastic data from the Mayo Clinic presented by Dr. Michelle Miltier. And I mean, of course, people who develop the fluid biomarker assays want to know the assay, want to ensure the assay was working. We want to know what the, what the assay is measuring, what it reflects. People with uh, biomarker cohorts want to know how it relates to PET and how it can be used for prognostic assessment. But people with population-based cohorts need to provide us with that window into, into real-world data. And in specialized cohorts, we became very used to seeing very high accuracies for detecting pathology and tracking disease progression. But for instance, in the Mayo data with population-based cohorts, we saw that PTAL might be as increased in Alzheimer's disease as it is in chronic kidney disease or in patients with a previous stroke or myocardial infarction. And if we are to just look at, at how well these PTAL isoforms uh, detected in this Mayo Clinic broader studies uh, pathology, we see AUCs of 0.70, which are a bit lower than what we were used to. And I mean, I think this is all just to highlight. I think we have done amazing work, and this is just highlighting how long is the, the road until we get there still. And this doesn't make these biomarkers not a little less amazing because they are the biomarkers that are going to change the way we, we see Alzheimer's disease and we can do it large scale. But it's really nice to have this real world data. And still in this plasma session on Tuesday regarding clinical application, Sebastian Palmquist from the BioFinder presented some of their data that they have been doing some fantastic work, both on like correlations with PET, and also in individualized prognostic models, we have some very interesting data. 
and is also much in line with what Dr. Oscar Hansen presented today in the session. And I think it's so nice to see that these biomarkers are per performing well in specialized cohorts. And another interesting thing, considering that last year we had blood heat out 181 and 217, this year we had a, a, a novel biomarker coming into play, uh, blood heat out 231. We also had CSF data on that. Uh, some very nice results presented by Nick Ashton here from Gothenburg. And, and some very interesting developments to see how this biomarker can also be a very dynamic and early biomarker. Much interesting to, to, to see how it was presented in line with GFAP as a new also biomarker to tracking very early changes in disease. These are my main highlights of the blood side. No, that's great to hear, Wagner, because it's it's really remarkable, I think, how far we've come with, with blood plasma markers, I think, moving down the pike. And I think there's still a little bit more time where we're going to see these readily available uh, in the physician's office, but a lot of global efforts going on worldwide. Uh, so thank you for sharing those highlights with us. I want to pivot now to Maureen. Um, Maureen, I'd like to ask you a question. We heard in your introduction about the range of clinical trials that you're really involved in. And what have you personally been on the lookout for while attending AAIC this year? Oh, goodness. There's been a tremendous uh, amount of information um, just in one week. Uh, I I've been interested in seeing how we can streamline all of the knowledge, all of this, you know, all of these research efforts that we're putting into ADRD clinical trial design methodology and how we can use all of the knowledge that we have to better predict clinical trial success um, in ADRD drug discovery. And not even just that, but across the different pathways that, you know, are tested uh, across various trials. Um, I, I think that um, I was looking out to see how we could use these diagnostic criteria, you know, these different biomarkers, you know, um, PET biomarkers, um, CSF, the new blood-based biomarkers, how we can translate those into use in clinical settings, you know, how patients can walk into a clinic and be able to um, get tested for these things. How can we possibly utilize all of these uh, biomarkers to in clinical research settings? Are we able to reduce the number of lumbar punctures that we do by increasing blood-based biomarkers um, within our trials? We know for a fact, at least based on uh, some of the posters that I saw and some of the presentations, that participants, you know, do um, do you know provide some negative response, you know, with respect to performing lumbar puncture procedures, and sometimes those are stop gaps to you know having people participate, especially within certain underrepresented uh, uh, populations. And so moving from discovering uh, new and you know biomarkers to validating them to actually um, deciding on cutoffs for these you know bi biomarker levels and actually utilizing them in our research and in our clinic settings, I think would be wonderful and would help to fast track you know the process of getting us from doing research to actually you know, reaping the gains of all the work that everyone's doing over the years. Why is this such an important question for us, Mari? Why do we need to solve this at this time? I mean, it's obvious that I was at one of the presentations this morning, and we were talking about how 
there's a yearly upsurge in the incidence and disease burden of Alzheimer's disease, and not just Alzheimer's disease, but other neurodegenerative diseases. I mean, the numbers are staggering, right? Uh, there's six million individuals who are 65 years and older who have Alzheimer's disease right now. And it's incredible to think that in 30 years, that number is going to double. And so I think that there is an urgent need for us to, you know, maximize on the time and the resources that we have. And I think that we need to, you know, invigorate the dementia uh, uh, science space. Um, And I think that if we move from thinking about this as, you know, um, dementia science, which is kind of long term and thinking of this as something that's, you know, life-threatening to people, to families, you know, um, and to loved ones, then, you know, I think that it would help to invigorate the space and, and, and create at least some sort of urgency. No, it's, it's, it's great to hear that because we know there's urgency to continue to push forward for all of us, I think, Maureen. One of the things I actually was very curious about for you is in your work in this space, um, even in just the past few years, have you seen advances and changes in in trial design where you're incorporating more biomarkers into some of those um, drug development trials that you're seeing that maybe are happening in your institution? And and have you seen any additional advances that you're taking away from you that you might like to incorporate from AIC this year? Yes, I mean, there have definitely been advances. I think, as Wagner said, there are always novel uh, biomarkers being, uh, you know, uh, developed, um, and this is great. Um, I think that we are at the point, though, where we're able to utilize these biomarkers, um, you know, some even in research. Um, uh, I, I was excited to see um, a lot of the sessions at the AAC this year talk about, you know, validation studies, you know, um, so even though we had new uh, biomarkers this year um, that were uh, presented, for instance, the Monday session, the ever-changing landscape of Alzheimer's disease biomarkers, you know, kind of focused more on validating some of those uh, biomarkers so that we could start to use them. Uh, the, I, I recall uh, a session where there was discussion about, you know, who's the person or, you know, what groups you know, should lead the way or lead that in that direction, you know, um, are the researchers the ones to say, you know, this, you know, these are the biomarkers to use, or is this going to be a government-led situation, or is this going to be one where there's some sort of a collaboration um, similar to, say, the NIAA, um, Alzheimer's Association framework, the uh, ATN. I think that, you know, we need to get to a point where there's some sort of collaboration in, um, agreement on guidelines to use for biomarkers as well as, you know, cutoffs that we use not just in in Alzheimer's disease, but in other neurodegenerative diseases, um, uh, because we do understand that cutoffs differ, you know, you know, based on, you know, the specific neurodegenerative disease and sometimes even based off of different characteristics and features within a specific disease uh, model. Today's session on, you know, towards clinical application of PET was super interesting to me. Um, I think it was a really great session to talk about, you know, how we can, you know, start to utilize tau pets, um, even though they're expensive, you know, but how to utilize those in, in at least still within the research space to, for earlier diagnosis and treatment of Alzheimer's disease. One of the speakers 
uh, I think in this AIC mentioned moving towards reporting quantitative AB biomarkers and, and reporting those to participants, reporting those, you know, uh, rather than using terms like um, amyloid positive or amyloid negative. Um, so these are kind of, you know, at least the major highlights. Uh, I think that there's still a long way to go, but, you know, I'm starting to think of ways in which we can translate the work that we currently have into into our, our clinics, into our communities. Um, I think that would be a good way to go just to get us, you know, moving ahead and, and moving forward. Thank you, Maureen. That was fantastic to hear. And, and thank you, Wagner, for your updates and your highlights. I think this was, it's great to see all of the exciting things that you were able to catch up on at AAIC. I'm going to pass it over now to Percy so we can continue moving along. Thanks. Sure. And thank you all for, for your comments and talking about what you've seen. A lot of exciting signs, but I want to pivot a little bit here because I know that an area that um, I think all of our panelists have an interest in today is understanding how we can address health disparities. Now, we've seen this discussed from multiple angles, and I know um, Anna has been keeping a close eye on, on the clinical manifestations regarding how we can meet the needs of people with dementia in diverse um, languages and cultures. And also, Karen has been focusing on uh, public health and dementia care themes regarding the latest in understanding differences in in risk factors that may be drivers of health disparities. So I just want us to start with Anna here. So Anna, can you tell us a little bit more about your work, uh, your work that has led to your interest in this area? Thank you, Percy. So I work as a speech and language therapist in London, which is a very multicultural, as most of the world is now, a very multicultural city. And I've been seeing people with dementia clinically for many, many years. Um, almost 20 years now, and most of those people that I see are multilingual, and yet the tools that we have available to us, the assessment tools, the psychometric tools, and the therapies, which are fairly minimal, this is a really novel area for speech and language therapists, um, so the area of dementia, there isn't a heap of research out there on the role of speech and language therapists in dementia. And what we have is mostly been developed for people who are monolingual, generally for people who are um, English speaking, and often from very white middle class backgrounds. That's the kind of, they're the kind of tools that we've, we're dealing with. That's the kind of um, research that's been done. So when speech and language interventions have been developed, often the, uh, the, case studies because we're really not able to do trials in this area yet but where there have been small group studies they've often excluded people who are multilingual who are from non-english speaking backgrounds quite frequently and that means that when we're trying to plan interventions for people or plan to assess people to diagnose their um their difficulties it's actually really tricky because we're using tools that aren't tailored to their needs i really appreciated maureen's comment early earlier two of them that actually um this idea that dementia is uh, it's a it's a, it's, a, it's an urgent issue that we need to consider not only for the people but for the people around that person and often when i meet people it's the the people and the people around that person who are saying, what do we do? How do we communicate with our loved ones now? They have memory difficulties, cognitive difficulties, language difficulties. 
And I specialise in developing interventions tailored to the needs of people with, um, mainly with language-led dementias, actually. So dementias such as primary progressive aphasia associated with frontotemporal dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And we've developed interventions that particularly try and meet the needs of people and their family members. So we're really looking at interventions about conversation, about quality of life and communication and social interaction. And so that's been the main focus of my research. But what I'm particularly interested in from this conference is the diversity of um, presentations. And I'm really glad there's been such a diverse uh, group of professionals and academics presenting, because often uh, researchers who focus on interventions haven't been such, so prevalent at these types of conferences. There haven't been so many, so much research focused on this. And I've really enjoyed listening to people who've been doing this, but also listening to people who've been addressing the needs of people from hard to reach and multilingual backgrounds. There's been some really great sessions that have described some really creative approaches. And I think that's actually really key for us to think much more creatively and think about what people need with people. So not think about what people need because we're the clinicians and the academics, but actually work with people to see how we can address their needs in this area. All right, thank you. Thank you for those comments, Anna. Um, but uh, one other thing I wanted to, to ask is, um, considering um, at AIC, what advances have you seen um, towards the assessment and uh, assessment and interventions being optimized for people from diverse languages and cultures? Thank you, Percy. That's a great question. I want to highlight two particular sessions that I felt real highlights, really important sessions. So there was one on Wednesday, um, so novel approaches and methodological issues in study of bilingualism and Alzheimer's and related dementia, dementias. Um, that was chaired by Thomas Bach and Miguel um, Roteria. But also there was a second session on Tuesday, actually, which was around novel approaches to diagnosing cognitive impairment in diverse languages and cultures. I'm going to start with the first one, actually, because this um, session had, I think, four presenters, but there was one particular presenter I want to comment on first. So um, Dr. Stephanie Grasso, who's a um, speech and language researcher, who focuses on um, developing interventions for people with language-led dementias. And she's probably one of the first people who's developed an intervention and actually treated people across two different languages. So she treated people with both uh, the atypical Alzheimer's um, language-led dementia, so logopenic variant PPA, and also people with semantic variant PPA, most commonly associated with the frontotemporal dementias, of course. And she treated a group of people who spoke both English and Spanish, and then also Within that group, there are also people who spoke other languages, including Farsi and English. And she looked at whether you could train them in one language and whether the effects of doing so training people on words in one language could actually translate into their other language. And what she found was that if you train people on target words that are cognates, so by cognates I mean words that have a similar derivation, in both languages, so for example, the word in French, uh, so portemonnaie means purse, 
So there is a very similar derivation of those two words in, across French and English. So if you select a, a set of target cognates which have similar um, so origins, you're more likely to be translation into both languages, and you're actually more also likely to see that carryover being maintained for up to 12 months post the intervention being delivered, which I think is huge, really. So not only are we able to um, Im improve the, a person's ability to name words but, and use words, but we can also demonstrate that that carries over to their, uh, another language and that we can maintain that for up to 12 months. The other person I wanted to flag in this session was Avanti um, Puplica, and she um, was talking about multilingual patients that she works with in India. And I just thought this was so powerful. So she talked about there being 26% of the Indian population is, is bilingual, which is around 20, 255 million people, right? And they speak 122 major languages, so 22 are official, but about one and a half thousand other languages exist. And she is a neuropsychologist, and she was looking at how you assess people with dementia who have, you know, speak multiple languages like this. And she, they've come up with a set of guidelines. And so, I, and I just wanted to summarize a couple of them. And one of them was that you should assess people in the most proficient language they have. But the second one, the second recommendation was that the examiner should be proficient in that target language, which I think is actually, and she flagged this in the, her presentation, that's often the most difficult issue that um, we as the uh, professionals or academics don't speak all the languages that the people that we're working with speak which I found quite interesting. And um, the other thing I wanted to mention from the Tuesday session on novel approaches to diagnosing cognitive impairments in diverse languages and cultures was a session that really stuck with me. Um, having worked in Australia myself, um, there was a, a speaker talked about how to reach the really hard to, you know, really hard to reach groups in, in Australia, the indigenous and Aboriginal Australian people with dementia and what they did was this absolutely fantastic co-produced piece of work on educating um people with in in those groups in those um in those hard to reach groups about dementia so they worked with people to co-produce artwork so they worked with people and their carers and their family members and um, they produce these incredibly moving and beautiful artworks, and they've integrated those artworks um, into their educational materials to convey to those groups the, the, what the impact of dementia is, what dementia, what, you know, what dementia is at all. So to support the education and support for those groups, because these artworks were considered so powerful, so valuable so much part of their community and the way they communicate with each other and I just wanted to finish with that as a highlight because I think that the co-production work that was done there so actually asking people in that community what would be meaningful to them was incredibly um, moving but also the most likely to have an impact on this group so uh, coming back to that comment I made at the beginning I think we, it, it's too often that we, as academics and professionals, assume that we know best 
And actually, this was just a beautiful example of how they um, worked with the local hard-to-reach communities to produce something that was helpful and meaningful to that group. Thank you so much for that, for that, Anna. It's it, it's great to see all uh, the progress being made in this space, and it's great to uh, to see that this is part of the, the conversation um, of these days. So I wanted to switch really quickly to to Karen, and I know your research interests span um, environmental and social cultural determinants of health across the lifespan, which may help explain the differences in dementia risk among different populations. So what factors have been on display this year at AIC that you've seen that have, that have piqued your interest? Yeah, so I, I believe the this year's session uh, reflect how much the field is considering the heterogeneity within the populations that are impacted by ADRD and the multidimensionality of the risk factors. Um, the session that Dr. Anna Wolfner just uh, highlighted um, um, that was facilitated by the bilingualism on PAI um, that was, it was a fantastic session. So if you didn't catch it, just please go back and, and, and look at it. And, and, um, I think three, um, main themes stood out for me, uh, this year. First, um, how the efforts towards understanding ADRD in groups that have been historically marginalized from aging research, such as Alaska Native, American Indian, or transgender, uh, people. Uh, it was it was really good to see that you know we are given uh, appropriate attention um, to and, and uh, to to you know to these groups and um, you know IDRD research has been historically conducted on racial racially homogenous groups and now we know that the risk factors differ in, this, in diverse groups. So um, what we know may not necessarily apply to all populations, and that's why it's important um, that we pay attention to very um, different factors. Today's session on diversity in clinical trials is um, excellent also. I'm highlighting this, so please um, go check it out. And um, another main theme is how we're highlighting the role of risk factors that stem from structural issues, such as environmental racism, Air pollution, discrimination, neighbor scarcity are is you know crucial for understanding and for that translational piece that we strive to improve clinical care for those of us who do clinical um, care and research. Um, and I'm hopeful that in the future years we will see more work incorporating an intersectionality framework. Um, definitely also check out um, Dr. Kind's uh, Any Kind's plenary from Monday. Um, because that will give you a, just a start for the rest of the, the week. And um, third, it wasn't very encouraging to see that researchers are thinking about individual factors such as social engagement or education from a life course perspective. We know that health disparities are not created in late life. They are born, you know, since conception and since early childhood. Um, so it's good that we are thinking as researchers, we're thinking about the individual factors, but considering them in context. So if you have some time to check out the prevention sessions, particularly the non-pharmacological session, uh, for non-pharmacological piece, the posters also are 
very, very good in that area. Thank you for that, Sharon. I think Alex agrees with you uh, on, on that. But um, I was also wondering if you could tell us more about why this is such an important question. And we, could, we, all, we all understand that. We, we all know that. But I want to hear in your words, why do you think this is, this is a critical question to, to address? Yes, um, because we're learning more and more that the risk for dementia is compounded throughout our lives. Actually, so it's not it's not something that just shows up when you're in middle age. So when we understand how socioeconomic disadvantage or low education, low or illiteracy uh, discrimination affect cognitive health throughout our lives, then that's when you know we we have the opportunity. Um, to create a bigger impact, right? We, we want to understand and expand the biological view that we have um, of ADRDs to integrate it with our social determinants of health and how the, uh, the biological mechanisms through which uh, these social determinants of health are expressed. So when we collaborate with other disciplines like public health and we come to spaces like this, um, then we can help to develop policies that contribute to equity and cognitive health from a very young age. And the earlier we can detect those risk factors, then um, the earlier we can intervene. And um, it is also important because we're realizing that, you know, we need to get more representative samples in order for us to answer these questions, partnering with the community, um, you know, being, uh, being really truly partners with them in developing um, research that actually addresses their needs and that we are, you know, all working together. Um, the, I think the efforts must be coming from all levels, and that's why I was really also excited to see the sessions um, uh, chaired by Dr. Cerise Elliott and Dr. Bernard regarding funding because we want um, we want to hear from diverse voices, right? We want to um, incorporate. Uh, researchers who ha who come from minoritized backgrounds. And for that, we need funding. So it's important that we get uh, the knowledge um, so we can um, start getting a better pathway of understanding this. And I think it's it's going to help us to shift the narrative and to have a, be more bold and go beyond what we have traditionally done in our research. Yes, and, and thank you for that. Uh, AIC is a global meeting. We have people from all over the world reporting on lots of different research. So I just really briefly, really briefly, just wanted to hear what research findings you have found most, you've been most excited by. Yes, I love the sessions on global perspectives. When when you know learning from uh, fingers Latam or the Diane trials in Latin America was um, very interesting. Also, really, uh, I can't highlight enough uh, Dr. Amy Kimes' plenary on Monday and learning, you know, that the recent grant that her, her and her team uh, were awarded to conduct the neighborhood studies and learning also how the, the neighborhood disadvantage index has been utilized beyond research and how we've been able to, they've been able to, to um, facilitate this um, tool so other non-researchers use it for real life and public health applications have been really exciting. So <laughs> I will highlight 
This sounds like great highlights, Karen. Thank you so much. Um, I want to make sure we have some time for Alex to talk here about some of the basic science and pathogenesis. And those are some big words for some people who maybe are tuning in who may not be scientists. So Alex, um, we know your research regards a lot of selector vulnerability in neuromodulatory subcortical systems. So that's a lot of big words. Um, I was wondering if you could explain to us what that all means. Yeah, it's a lot of syllables uh, for sure. And we actually just uh, in this past year started a professional interest area on neuromodulatory subcortical systems. So we started to try to get NSS to catch on so we don't have to uh, say so many syllables. But uh, it might, you know, it's a, this really interesting set of uh, nuclei or cells in the brain that evolved like 400 plus million years ago before like mammals even existed. And what's really interesting is in a lot of telepathies, including Alzheimer's disease, they're some of the first regions to be affected. Um, but uh, what I spend a lot of time thinking about is kind of the role they play in just keeping us alive. These these regions, again, evolved so early on that their basic role was to just, you know, regulate sleep and your ability to become aroused in, in stressful situations. If you're thinking about life history factors and how they're influencing individuals, um, it's a really great place to look at. And, and there's reasons both stemming from evolutionary histories as well as life course histories why these regions might actually be affected. Of interest, one region called the locus ceruleus that uh, is some people call the flight or flight nucleus has actually degenerated in PTSD as well. Uh, so it's, it's tightly engaged by anxiety and stressors. And I'm actually really glad that I was right after Karen with this, but Karen and I used to work together. <laughs> and a lot of uh, how I think about some of these things come from her and her mentor at UCSF, Sergio Lanada, um, where, you know, it, it's, it's, I think, a crime that we don't really understand how a lot of these social uh, and, like, behavioral factors influence individuals biologically. First thing I wrote down about sessions was Dr. Kine's presentation, actually, which you know, maybe isn't the basic science of pathogenesis track, but it for sure, I think, is key for trying to understand how uh, uh, variation in social behavioral factors influence biology at a really tight level. And I, I think, you know, in a lot of public discussion, especially in the last year about health disparities, it's treated as kind of this, like, ambiguous wishy-washy thing, but it's actually affecting biology and it's affecting uh, your risk for certain diseases at a really tight molecular level. So my research is focused on that, specifically in these regions that are so involved with just how you experience the world around you. And, you know, when these regions die off, it's not necessarily affecting things like cognition. However, there were some nice talks at AIC about how they do affect cognition, but some of the early signs of this degeneration are things like anxiety, depression, and sleep dysfunction. Um, I've been really encouraged that there's been more focus on those things because they are a part of the disease process. It's, it's not some, you know, ethereal thing that I, I think sometimes it's, it's, it's talked about in that context. So, um, hopefully that, yeah, in lay terms, <laughs> that's, that's a lot of what I, I focus on. And I just really think it's important that we get at the underlying mechanisms for some of these things. Um, of course, you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions 
are a great way to deal with them too. So it's, I think if we can actually understand it, it's a great economically advantaged way to address disease because it might just be things like helping improve access to resources in neighborhoods that we maybe could identify through some of the uh, 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 tools that uh, Dr. Kine talked about in that amazing work. Alex, I think you hit upon some of the important reasons why we really need to study this. And I, you know, gathering from what you just said, it's not only going to potentially be impactful on people living with dementia, but also their caregivers because of quality of life and, and even that responsibility of caregiving could be relieved a bit if we have a so what's, what um, stood out to you at AAIC that you were most excited about? Yeah, I mean, you know, this I think is my uh, sixth or seventh at AAIC. And, it, you know, the first one I was at, there was like two posters on degeneration and the locust cerulea is one of which was mine. And now it's like there's so many cool ones and there's so many people thinking about these issues. So, uh, I mean, it just it, if you're looking through the poster session, just look for like stuff on reasons like the locus ceruleus and hypothalamus. There's stuff about, you know, uh, post-mortem series and evaluating, you know, how early these regions are degenerating. There's been really cool biomarkers recently. You know, we're now getting better and better at measuring things like the locus ceruleus in vivo, which, you know, wasn't really possible until a while ago. Um, there, are, there are a number of groups working on that. Um, so I would encourage anyone to just look through some of the sessions that it's been ranging from, you know, people thinking about neuropsychiatric symptoms, uh, for biomarkers through kind of like basic science and, uh, uh neuropathology. There was also, uh, another talk yesterday, uh, or session shared by Mark Campman. I mean, it wasn't actually really about the neuromodulatory subcortical system, but it was about, uh, advances in single cell, uh, uh, Omics approaches, um, which is really a new uh, world that I think basic scientists are kind of starting to wrap our heads around. Um, you know, plenary on it, there's a bunch of posters on it. Uh, and what's really exciting about that is that there's a lot of heterogeneity in the brain, uh, and that heterogeneity underlies selective vulnerability, but we haven't really had a great way to investigate it on a cell-by-cell -cell basis, uh, especially in humans, until in really the past couple of years. Um, and, you know, for me, studying these early subcortical systems, we want to know why those cells are the ones to die off early on. Um, and I'm just really excited that we kind of have tools to look at that now. Um, we're actually, right now, there's another session happening, uh, uh, talking, it, that's co-chaired by Dr. Larry Grimberg and Dr. Heidi Jacobs, who are the uh, 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 chairs for our executive committee for that professional interest area. Uh, it's looking at uh, how degeneration in neurological systems, specifically locus ceruleus, is affecting patterns of amyloid deposition. Uh, there, there's several papers uh, in animal literature that actually show that not only are there like behavioral effects of degeneration of regions, but it affects underlying neurophysiology in a way that makes the rest of the brain more vulnerable. And now we have great work that's starting to look at that in humans. So right after the session, I'm probably going to go and uh, look at that on demand. And I would uh, encourage people to do that with me because uh, I, I really want to hear what they're talking about. And then the last thing I'll mention, uh, too, is, you know, the, the main symptoms that at least I kind of conceptually relate to degeneration of those reasons 
are neuropsychiatric symptoms. Um, and there was a couple great talks yesterday about both treatment and diagnostic criteria for those that um, I, I think become uh, really important for trying to longitudinally evaluate patient populations um, in a way that allows us to get at some of those uh, behavioral symptoms that actually might be early manifestations of the same disease process of maybe causing memory issues just in a different region that would instead maybe cause depression and we need to be a little bit more sensitive to some of those changes. So I, I really loved those talks as well. They weren't really talking about you know molecular biology or anything like that, but uh, it, it, it's, I think, super informative for people who are thinking about molecular biology to understand that uh, psychiatric and uh, social behavior. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. I mean, I think it was like, we've gone through so much. Yeah. I think I've also heard each one of you maybe put a plug in for each one of your professional interest areas as yep. you've been talking along here. And uh, maybe we'll do one last <laughs> rapid round question for each of you. Um, we'll, it'll be a test for you in your executive planning, maybe. I'll let, yeah. I'll let, I'll let Percy uh, give the last question for the day. Yeah, so um, as Rebecca mentioned, Sounds like you're, you're all iStart members, you're all part of professional interest areas. So how do you all plan to continue these uh, discussions year-round? Because AIC is what, five, six days, however long it is. So but we need to have these conversations going. So what are your plans for that? And really quickly, because we're almost running out of time, just, just briefly, well, we could start with Wagner. Yeah, yeah, of course I'm ready. And I planned it better than my previous talk. I'll be faster now. So well, I'm going to do some promo for the PIA I'm most involved with right now. So there's a new PIA called the Professional Interest Area to Elevate Early Career Researchers. The whole goal of the PIA is to connect early career researchers throughout the year and try to maintain this networking conference atmosphere the whole year long. And pretty soon we'll have a global survey out to uh, understand what are the challenges of ECRs in dementia science around the world. So join iStart, join the ECR PIA, and answer the survey that will be out very soon. Sure. Thank you, Agnar. I think we'll move to Anna next. Thank you. I, I'm just going to echo what Wagner said, actually. I'm going to try and invite more speech and language therapy clinical academics and speech and language researchers to join iStart. I so that we can have more presence at these type of events, because I think um, we could really helpfully collaborate with other professionals that way. The more of us there are, that then that helps us work together to move this field forward. Thank you. And I'm going to throw a curveball and ask Alex in the room now. <laughs> yeah, well, so I'm a, a, a co-student here for the Neurological Voice Support Systems, PIA, the NSS PIA. One of the lovely features of that PIA is it's very multidisciplinary. So we have you know, people working in biomarkers, uh, neuropsychologists, basic scientists, and we're, we're starting to plan out a series of webinars on even things like basic, you know, neuroanatomy of the region. We're going to try to, um, you know, collaborate with, you know, uh, the iStart leadership and the Alzheimer's Association to put together those educational materials, um, and you know, maybe even make them. Uh, you know, accessible to young, like K through 12 students who are interested in the brain. And, um, you know, we'll probably emphasize, you know, the role of neurodegenerative diseases in the region as well. But I think it's just valuable to create, you know, educational resources for that. We have the experts in our field to do that. So, yeah, from Maureen. 
Yes, of course. Uh, I'm going to uh, just follow with Wagner and shamelessly plug in for the C-Camp here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, so I'm an exec, I'm a member of the executive committee for C-Camp and it's the clinical trials advancement and methods. Um, and even though um, AAIC is going to be ending uh, today, there's going to be a lot more sessions and a lot more um, educational uh, uh uh, uh, gatherings and webinars um, in the coming weeks. So starting off with um, a session that we're going to be having, it's an educational workshop called, uh, and we'll be presenting perspectives on adaptive trials and future trial design. Uh, this is on um, August the 11th, I think, and it's at 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, Eastern Standard Time, I think. And um, we're also going to be having the CTAMPIA um, scientific session um, and business uh, meeting September the 8th. Uh, and we're going to be presenting, um, I think, two, two topics, uh, just uh, focus on remote assessments uh, in clinical trials, especially now that, you know, a lot of um, participants are, you know, um, we're kind of being innovative with how we collect um, clinical trial data um, in this setting. Uh, the CTAM PIA has recently started uh, a journal club, um, and so we'll be trying to do those at least two, three times in the year. So uh, if we have any early career researchers who are interested in um, making, you know, presenting uh, journal works, uh, uh, articles, um, you can reach out to me. Um, just search for Maureen Okafor uh, on, on the uh, AAIC website. Sure. Thank you. And finally, Jared. Uh, I think, you know, again, like, like my colleague said, join the PS. Uh, I'm part of the diversity and disparities and I sometimes join the bilingualism PS. I, I mean, it's, they're fantastic. You can get that interdisciplinary collaborations. Another, um, way is, you know, if you're, on, if you're on Twitter, join the academic Twitter world and we always have these conversations. <laughs> over tweets, um, or, you know, for help synthesize information. So that has been really helpful. Give back, right? As researchers, we want to give back and we want to connect and really hear from the communities that we serve and we uh, work with um, so we can have those conversations at all levels with our colleagues, with the community in general, with the global community. That was amazing, Karen. Uh, thanks for that ending. I think you, you said it better than Percy or I could. I think keep connecting with each other, keep connecting with your communities. Uh, I, I want to just, myself, I think on behalf of the association and, and on behalf of Percy, want to thank all of you for joining us today. This has been an amazing session. This is the first time we've done this before. And I just want to say it's been great and we plan to continue to try to create these opportunities in the future because it's so wonderful to hear from you all what you found most intriguing at AAIC and what you're going to try to push forward for the future. So thank you so much for attending. Uh, thank you to all online. And uh, we hope to see you next year at AAIC. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that just as much as we did. What fantastic insights into their own work and the sessions they've seen across the week. Thank you very much to the Alzheimer's Association for very kindly sharing the recording with us and giving us permission to share it with you. Remember, you can still access the conference content for 30 days at als.org forward slash AAIC. Bye.